Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. the Hustle Podcast, John Lamoureux. John, welcome to the program. Hi, Baco. Thank you for having someone like me on your wonderful show. I'm, I'm honored. You are not just one of my favorite interviewers, although you, you touch on a lot of different people that I don't have a lot of interest in. I just think you do a good job of uh, interviewing people. But but more than that, you. you are also a person I do not want to stand behind at a concert. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. To, and I and I will say to anyone who has had to do that, I do my best to stand in the back, not always in the back of the room, but maybe like on the back of the floor. Or, you know, I try to be very sensitive to this. Uh, what do you measure at about seven foot eight? <laughs> six, eight. Six, eight. But oh, yes. OK. All right. I was, yeah. only a, yeah. I was only a foot off. But uh... so. <laughs> seven to eight. I don't know that there's ever even been an NBA guy that's seven, eight. <laughs> that would be uh, that would be gargantuan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'm actually amazed that I got some time from you because of, uh, aside from your podcast, which, you know, is constantly cranking out new material, uh, I got to believe that, you know, it's difficult to, to get permission from all seven of your wives to join me. Excuse me. There it is. There's the Mormon <laughs> joke. Yes. yes. Well, it goes to a tribunal and we take a vote. <laughs> And if the majority, if four of the seven approve it, then I can do fun things like this. All right. Well, then my uh, thanks to the four who voted yes. I, I assume it was <laughs> kind of like a Supreme Court vote, pretty split. But uh, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> well, let's get a little, a little bit into your show. I was listening to your most recent interview, at least the one that I saw, uh, the, the Lisa, Lisa and Cult Jam one. Uh, boy, you talk about a name I hadn't thought of in, in forever. Um, yeah. And it's actually a, she is just engaging as all hell. Um, how did you line that up? And it, w- w- are you a big fan of that, that music or is this just because the theme of your podcast is you want to talk to musicians who didn't really hit like that Springsteen level, but are still going, you know, decades in. Correct. Right. Well, it's it's kind of evolved. I mean, originally, the original conceit was that I wanted to kind of seek out people who like a one hit wonder, you know, or if you anyone who's had an uh, had the opportunity to sort of dance on a major label for a little while with yeah. maybe one album or, you know, appearances on Carson or whatever it would have been. And then it went away. What was that like? But thankfully, I've been able to it was easier than I thought it was going to be to get some decent people to have on the show, you know, and um I, uh, so it's just kind of grown from there. I'm, I'll talk to anybody. I mean, I talked to Springsteen and, uh, but I do find these kind of middle tier and I hope that's not disrespectful to any of them, of them, um, 
really interesting because they're not as self-conscious as someone who's still out there trying to kind of keep up an image. They're more thoughtful and more, um, you know, honest and vulnerable. Now, as far as Lisa Lisa goes, yeah, I liked a couple of those songs back in, back in the day. It, I will be honest, I didn't buy any of those records back then. But I had a fat crush on her. Good Lord, she was so hot. And um, now you're talking my language, yeah. Yes, yes. And uh, so I just thought, of course, I want to talk to her. And there's a couple other podcasters out there. I should name them: Steve Cooper from the Cooper Talk podcast, and Noel Fogelman from Living My Youth. And um, we have a lot of the same people on our show, and Mm. we end up kind of like helping each other, you know, with contact information. That kind of stuff happens a lot, you know. I'll hear from Pat Francis or I'll hear from Pods and Sods or, uh, you know, Records Revisited or whatever, and we'll kind of swap names. I think you might be a good fit for this person or whatever. Sure. Uh, I'm only about halfway through because we got to the point where we're going to start recording today, but I was just surprised at how interested I was in, in, in how she handled herself. Um, yeah. But to your original point there, uh, I was not really a fan of the music, but I definitely uh, enjoyed the the videos with the volume off. Uh, and I, I mean, it was uh, it was definitely because they peaked right in '85. Uh, and for anybody that listened to our uh, greatest year in rock 1986 episode, know that I spent a lot of time, you know, wiping up stuff with a sock. So she was definitely on the list. Uh, <laughs> I felt like you did though, a little like creeped out by my own behavior even though i was only yeah. in junior high or high school right like mm-hmm. like to find out she was just turning 15 yeah it's like what I mean, a smoke show I, I was trying to find a really respectful non-judgmental way of saying that but i mean <laughs> i enjoyed that at, it was really difficult that whole interview honestly was kind of difficult because as she was a total sweetheart but yep. she wasn't much of a talker and so i found myself kind of trying to Go find different doorways into getting the information that I wanted. None of them were quite opening up to me. So that was a little bit of a difficult interview. But yeah, I mean, look at the, you go back and she's 15 and her, she's fully, you know, her breasts are huge and she's super sexy and she's <laughs> dancing sexily and she's singing these songs. And it's like, your mom let you do that? You know, like, do you even oh know what God. you're talking about? But then I sound like I'm judgmental and I'm putting my values on her and I never want it to sound that way. Sure. Yeah. But, so anyway, I it, knew exactly where you were coming from. Cause I was even like explaining right. it to my wife and she's like, what's the big deal? How old was he at the time? I'm like, well, that's, that's really, that's a valid <laughs> point, but I don't think you're quite grasping. Cause, cause I don't know, no. whatever. It, to me, it's still a time capsule. I grew up and that video stayed the same age. And yes. now that little visual is like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> All right. Uh, call yeah. Flow your roll, Baco. Well, right. let, and even if I was the same age, I'm not the one out there singing sexily and dancing sexily. She is. So I just, that had to have been a awkward thing, but she played it off. Like it wasn't. Well, do you have a daughter? I do. She's almost thirteen. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I do too. My my mine's you know twenty three, but uh, that has to play a part of it because you're starting to yeah. think of like, oh fuck, you know, because we yes. know we know how fucking sick we are. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. That's it. We just don't want our daughters to meet guys <laughs> like us. You know. It's so true. Uh, hand to heart, John. I thought one of the uh, first bits of advice I gave to my daughter when she started dating was like, just don't date musicians. And she's like, you're one. I'm like, I know what the fuck I'm talking. First, of course, she does. The first three boyfriends she had were all fucking musicians. Oh, man. Uh, but but uh, for interviews, how much time do you spend prep? Do you do a lot of prep as far as uh, uh, questions and stuff of that nature? Or do you kind of let the thing kind of go where it's going to go? 
I do a lot of prep. Um, I will say the more I've noticed lately that the um, the more notes I take, I take more notes for people I know less about mm-hmm. because there's less, you know, already in the mind, already in my brain to call on. The hardest, well, not the hardest part, the most time consuming part of it all is feeling as if I need to listen to all of the music that they've put out. You know, like I know Lisa Lisa's hits, but I didn't, I've never listened to every album she's ever put out, but I feel I owe that to her. And that's, you end up finding some interesting avenues to go down when you notice changes in style or, you know, producers or a lyric here or there or whatever. So that's the time consuming part is, man, I got to book time to listen to all seven Lisa Lisa and Jolt cult jam albums and, uh, and think, you know, and really absorb them and think interesting thoughts about them. That's the part that gets really time consuming. Um, it, it definitely is easier when you know the, the subject matter right. out well. Um, it is a part, I mean, you do a weekly show, which is interviews all the time. Uh, we do interviews as they kind of come to us. And I really only seek out ones that I feel comfortable that I don't have to do a ton of prep for. Um, right. but, uh, at the same time, I still try to make sure, cause you never know what kind of person the, you know, if you haven't interviewed him before, especially and you don't have a relationship, which is largely what you do. Um, mm-hmm. we've had, we've had a few repeat guests is what all, all I mean there. Uh, mm-hmm. the, you, you might run into someone who's a bit stonewalled or having a shitty day or mm-hmm. something like that. And if you don't have a, yeah. at least a dozen questions in the can, you, you know, to get the conversation fired up or something like that, it can, it can backfire on you. It's interesting. You mentioned that because, um, this is a, uh, when I first got into podcasting, I just assumed no one would care what I thought. You know, mm. I'm some nobody in Denver. So what do they – I need – my currency, the value that I bring has to be in the art, in the people that I have on the show because no one's going to listen. No one cares what I think about anything. But you guys and other podcasts have sort of doubled down or gone all in on your personalities as being the driving force. <laughs> and, you know, it's like you're the – it's like we, you're these closeted uh, morning DJs, you know, like that's what we always wanted. And so this is our avenue to do what we always wanted. And I find that a real d- interesting distinction, what it is that all of us different prod- podcasters bring to the table, because it, we bring the thing that we always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to be a music journalist. You probably, I'm assuming, always wanted to be some like a radio personality or whatever. And so you guys nail that. But I didn't feel like I was capable of doing that. And so I thought my currency needs to be my guests. I wanted to be Paul Stanley, to be fair. Uh, it, well, okay. Uh, I, I shot high uh, and, uh, you know, <laughs> f- fell a little shy of that. but uh, A little uh, bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think you sell yourself short a little bit. I, I really like the way you handle yourself in interviews. And being a good interviewer, I had to learn, you know, through actually listening to people like yourself, how to kind of do it and kind of get over it. And then on top of that, you know, I mean, as someone who stood on stages and had to get over like a little bit of nerves going on to stage, getting almost having to to learn how to do that again in a different forum. You know, I'm sitting in my basement talking to a guy on the phone and I'm like, he's going to call in two minutes. Just calm down. Um, So that took a little bit to get used to. So I I really appreciate it. I think there's a little art and craft in the way you handle stuff. Uh, You are a personality, just a different kind. I think by now, hopefully kind of like with Mark Marin or anybody else, they, um, I do think I hope and my hope is that people who listen to me now kind of trust that whoever the guest is, I'm going to 
pull out the best stories I can find from them, you know, Mm -hmm. and that has more to do with me. But I understand if they don't. I don't listen to every (laughs) single Mark Maron episode either. If it's a guest I don't care about, I delete it, you know. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, hopefully by now I've built a reputation as being a decent interviewer. Well, of the interviews you've done for the show, what would you say are some of your favorites? There's a few that I go back to a lot. One of the best ones was one of our early ones, and it was with Christopher Thorne, who's the guitarist for Blind Melon. And this is episode 17, I want to say, 16, 17, something like that. And um, I've probably got, I hope I've gotten a little bit better as an interviewer since then. But I love that one so much because I'm I'm not the world's biggest Blind Melon fan, but what a fascinating story that is. You guys have just achieved worldwide stardom, sold millions of records, and the front, the front man, the face of your organization suddenly dies one day out of the blue. No one can spot the rest of you in a lineup. So what do you do with the rest of your life? You know, it's over like that. And he got it. And he, uh, we had a very open and honest revealing conversation about what that process is like. And, uh, I think about that one a lot because he emailed me after it came out And bless his heart, he said, I got to be honest with you, that was the best interview I've ever done, and I've done millions of them. And I thought, (laughs) like you, I'm some guy, like in my underwear, in my basement, and here, a guy, you know, a world-famous musician liked my interview. That is, And I just started back then. So that's one of the best ones. Another one that I think is really good is Steve Kilby, who is the frontman for The Church, the Australian kind of alternative rock band, The Church. That was a very good one. Thank you. So, yeah, we he was just open and honest and brutally honest about (laughs) drugs and his finances and his opinions on other bands. And he lays it all out there. And so I, sometimes I just think of it as getting lucky. You know, you find the right guest at the right moment. They feel comfortable telling me some things and it goes from there. You ever had a moment where you knew the person was lying to you? Um, it's not so much lying, but I, I, sometimes I know when they get their facts wrong and sometimes oh, right. I know, yeah. I mean, like, the, you know what I mean? And, or an embellishment of something, you know, I, yes. but I'm talking flat out where I haven't personally experienced it, but you know, I, I I've heard other people interview people where they say something. And I'm like, well, that's just not fucking true. Or they, right. they, they're unnecessarily mean to somebody or something like that. You know, I just, I'm just curious if you've encountered that. I don't think so. Nothing's leaping to mind. Um, if I were to go back, maybe, but I, uh, I don't think of anything like that, but there have been people who, you know, they, like you said, they embellish or they get their facts wrong or they, they, like I interviewed Peter Wolf recently, the producer, Peter Wolf. Yeah. And a lot of people were like, oh, not Jay Giles, Peter Wolf. <laughs> right. And uh, he got some facts wrong about why certain, ba- you know, an album he produced didn't work. And uh, specifically a big country album that most of the fans, big country fans hate this album, don't think it's very good. But I didn't want to say that to him. And so his reasoning for why it didn't succeed was something completely different. They didn't go on Live Aid and and they should have. And that's why there's four years apart between these things. None of that is true. But I wasn't going to call him out on that. You know, he's a legend. I'm not going to tell him. So, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know what I would do exactly. I mean, I, like I said, I've I've heard the embellishments where it's like you know, yeah, playing in front of twenty thousand people in Madison Square Garden. When what they're really saying is that you know we were opening for Def Leppard. You know, right? <laughs> you know, right. and that that so technically it kind of did happen, but that really wasn't your yeah whatever. Mm-hmm. But no, yeah. um, well, let's go the other spectrum. What about least? What's one of your some of your least favorite interviews? One of them was. 
in the last few months, I guess, I interviewed one of the members of Gene Loves Jezebel. They're probably a band that you probably don't care about. But, Not um, a whole lot, but were, I know who they are. Okay. So they were run by two by twin brothers, Michael Aston and Jay Aston. And um, Jay is who I talk to, and he's kind of the main – I don't know. They both carry that name around. But Jay, just every, ask, every question I, ans- I asked him – they are feuding constantly. And so every question, whether it had to do with his brother or not, went back to a story about how he argued with his brother about something. And that just got kind of tedious after a while. There was another guy who was the drummer of a band that I really like called the Chameleons. And um, he started out by saying, you can ask me anything you want. And there's bad blood between him and the lead singer of the Chameleons. And so I wanted to know about that. <laughs> and he started out by saying something. And then he said, that's all I'm going to say about that. And so he wouldn't – he said you can ask me anything, but then he kind of shut it all down and wouldn't get introspective about it. Plus he had this super thick Cockney accent that I had a really hard time understanding. And the poor guy died a few months later. And uh, so anyway, there have been some that just – they're not that successful. You yeah. know, I've got – I uh, and I hate to put them out, but I never know. I'm probably the worst judge of these. A lot of the ones I don't think are very good. People love them, and some of the ones I think are great don't do anything. I never know. Yeah, there's a bit of a self-loathing aspect to it, I suppose, because I feel that way sometimes as well. Um, yeah. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll one that really didn't do much for me when I was recording it. I'll throw it out, and I'll get you know someone who listens to the show just you know say one of the nicest things about it. So I mm-hmm. think I think the point there is that you know a lot of especially with your show, you touch on a lot of artists that don't get a lot of public you know or publicity. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's there still is people out there that remember these guys and, and, and care. So you met you talking about Lisa Lisa. That's the exact reaction that I hope happens every week is that you're like, wow, I haven't thought about Lisa Lisa in so long. But I used to like that song or, <laughs> you know, I used to have a crush on her. Or I love those videos, whatever. So it calls back on this nostalgia that you've forgotten about and that and then you get kind of excited to hear about it. You um, I mean, I don't listen to every. Yeah episode you guys ever do but i i know i've mentioned this to you before i thought your episode with john karabi was so good and Mm. it's an example i purposely don't always go after some of the hard rock and heavy metal folks because it feels like there's plenty of other podcasts that are doing that and do it probably better than i could and that was an example of one when i listened to that conversation i thought i couldn't top this and so this is i'm so glad that that conversation is out in the world for people to hear because it was fantastic. And if I had done it, it wouldn't have been as good. And so I wanted to, you know, kudos to you. You guys do a great work sometimes too. It warms my heart that you picked one that I didn't do. <laughs> I thought you were on that <laughs> one. <laughs> no, you're supposed to laugh at that. No, it's all good. I think it's a great example. Luce doesn't do as many interviews as I do. We, we don't do them together for scheduling. It just turns into a fucking nightmare. Um, uh-huh. Trying to get three people to go, well, this day, that time, and all that stuff, you know. Right. Um, no, I think, I think, uh, Luce is a little hesitant to do him sometimes. I think he does a fabulous job and I love that interview as well too. And, you know, I you can didn't t- do that. I no. thought you did. I'm sorry. That, it, <laughs> it is 100% okay. Luce is going to okay. look, you, look, this is going to be on the playback and you just made his day. No. So no, okay. uh, yeah, no, and he lives here in Denver. We need to hang out. We talk about it sometimes and haven't done it. I will say one other. Okay. This is what I know you did. I used your interview with Mark Torian of the Bullet Boys. Oh, we Boys. talked about that while you were kind of researching it, yeah. Yes, to prepare for my interview with him, um, I relied heavily on your conversation with him. 
Yeah, he was. Anyway. Uh, he was. Well, speaking of guy who's got a lot of bullshit there, but uh, yes, he he, yes. he definitely embellishes things. But uh, I think in a harmless way. I mean, I, I I think he gets a lot of shit, but I I don't know the guy personally. Maybe he's fucked over a lot of people. But I just like, well, I, what do I care that he said he sold eight million records and it maybe only right. was two, right? All right. Well, uh, we should <laughs> probably get into today's episode. Uh, the record that um, we're talking about today is one that neither one of us had heard prior to prepping for this. If I understand okay, that I'm, right, correct? Yes, and I was. I'm relieved to hear you hadn't either. Yeah, yeah. This is new to and me. this is a good. This I almost like just slid off the list. I'm like, I don't even know what the fuck this is. It's a it's a compilation record, and uh-huh. I'm like, I'm just gonna move one up. You know what I mean? I just this is <laughs> I don't want to because there's already a movie soundtrack in here. But then when I found out what it was, which is basically the first recordings of a lot of like either bands or musicians, and uh, we'll get into all the details of that, but this is a, a very much like if, if Seattle music scene that eventually blew up was like they, if they all went to high school together, this is like their yearbook. Um, yeah. It is just, uh, it was actually a fascinating record to dive into. A couple details on this record. I'll just get some of this stuff out of the way, and then we'll start talking about it. But uh, right. it was released on March 21st, 1986. Uh, it was recorded at Ironwood Studios in Seattle, Washington, released on CZ Records which was basically just uh, Tina Casale and uh, Chris Hanzik. They they they, uh, they produced and, and started that label. So Casale is the C and Hanzik is the Z, focusing mm-hmm. on the Zek. Um, it features the, uh, it's called Deep Six because there are six bands, Green River, Melvin's, Malfunction, Skin Yard, Soundgarden, and the U-Men. I think I got all six there. Mm-hmm. A lot of really uh, kind of cool things to get into on this one. Tell me what you thought when you when I first just threw this record at you, and then like kind of any 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 feelings you got on the album overall. I um, so I I was happy to do the oddest one in the on the list, mm-hmm. no doubt. I I assumed when you threw that out there, I thought, well, him and all of his buddies are going to want to pick the really hot, sexy ones. So. I'm, you know, I'm on the fringe. I'll take whatever you don't want to do or whatever no one else wants to do. I'll take that one. I like pretty much everything, you know. Yeah. So I will say when I listen to this, it is not it's not my language at all. It's not my <laughs> musical taste. You know, it's funny. I listened to this album probably five times to yeah. get ready to talk to you. And the first four, I just was like, oh, my gosh, this is just sludgy and it goes on forever. But I had it on in the background before we hopped on. And that time I was really digging it. And I just thought, you know, music, it's so subjective. It, it all depends on the mood you're in. I realized today that there is a mood that I might fall into once in a while where this album is the right thing for me. It may not happen very often, mm-hmm. but it might still happen. And so, but yeah, the the sludgy hardcore, this, this did not, this was not speaking my language back then, especially in the 80s. I mean... The Smiths, Depeche Mode, New Order, Echo and the Bunnymen, those are what, that's what was speaking my language back then, you know? Now, where would you have been living in 86? 86, Salt Lake City, Utah. Oh, yeah, with uh, your yep. future wives. That's uh. all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, because so you mentioned that, like 86 was, you know, I mean, my world was, you know, dragging Kiss along with me from my childhood. And then it was, you know, all, all Motley Crue, uh, Dokken, uh, Rat, all that kind of the, the the obvious artists of that time. Um, 
secretly I was a big pop music fan. So there's a lot of like Hall and Oates kind of stuff that that I got into go. in the early '80s that I was still kind of keeping on the edge there. Um, not really buying a lot of it, but you know you'd hear it everywhere and see it on MTV. But um, well, yeah, because this wasn't really a record that we would have been able to find anyway, right? Mm-mm. No. I mean, do they even no. allow music in Utah? Uh, here we go. Footloose. Yes, they do. In fact, uh, <laughs> that's a great line. Yeah. That is. Um, yes. In its own way, it's not a place where a lot of bands come from, but especially even today, 80s alternative is still thrives over there. Howard Jones comes to Utah <laughs> and he sells out an outdoor amphitheater. You know, it's weird. But it's what real. is the most famous musician from Utah? Uh, well, probably the Osmonds are the most oh, famous. Of course. Uh, yeah. Um, the country, now, a little bit rock and roll, but not at all jazz. No, no. Uh, yeah, the jazz. Well, the jazz. Okay, so the Utah Jazz, you probably know the story. They were originally in New mm-hmm. Orleans. They were the New Orleans Jazz. And they moved to Utah and never changed their name, which yeah. is odd because there is no jazz in Utah. Not then, there is now. Um, but anyway, yeah, the Osmonds, the used. We're a band from the oh, like nineties, two thousands. Yeah, that came out of Utah. Uh, Neon Trees is a fairly new band that okay. came out of Utah. Those guys are great. I like them a lot. The Killers started in Las Vegas, but Brandon Flowers uh, is Mormon, their lead singer, and he has he's from Utah originally, or had spent summers there or whatever. So yeah, there's not a lot. There's not a lot. But back to the point with the record, they, they really wouldn't have been even in in like no. a. I don't know, almost anywhere, probably outside of Seattle, there was no way to really find out about this record in 86, unless you worked at a college radio station where they sent it to you or something. Right. Yeah, I agree. Now, you you touched on all those bands that you mentioned. You know, you're, you're I, in 83 or 86, I'm 13 years old. How are you? How old are oh, you? Oh, really? You're younger than me. I, I would have thought we were, I thought, I, I pegged you as slightly older than me. So, mm. like, like 50, 51. So I was, okay. um, well, 15 in 1986. Uh, yeah, I'm clearly more mature than you. But oh, absolutely. Older. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, um, it's, you talk about like my journey with this kind of music. I, I rejected, um, music that was a little too hard for most of my life. And I don't know if that was a religious thing. I know that you like to joke about that and there, it may have been, there may have been some residue about that, but at no point, just to be clear, did a, did Mormonism or any church leader or anything like that say, you should not be listening to heavy metal. It just was not necessarily for me. It was a little too aggressive for me. And I liked like the shinier, poppier stuff back then. And it wasn't until about 15 years ago, I think I've told this before, I read Chuck Klosterman's book, Fargo Rock City. Mm, Amazing book. Yes. Growing up in southern Minnesota, Chuck and I had very symbiotic lives. I really loved that book because it was taking this music that I had always sort of marginalized in my brain, probably because I read Rolling Stone magazine and they marginalized that music and just figured that it wasn't worth my time. And I grew to appreciate it so much after reading that book because it legitimized it. It was an argument for and on behalf of the artistic merit of basically hair metal, which I didn't think there was any. And so I'm reading this and I'm like, man, I have just ignored an entire genre of music for most of my life. And I went deep after that. And now I'm still not to the left. You know, I don't have every Dawkins album or whatever, but so much of it I love and appreciate now that I couldn't have done before. And this is going to come up a couple of times in some of the songs on here. Some of them are just too, still to this day, a little too aggressive 
for me because that mm. wasn't the language that I spoke. You know, it wasn't it's too hard, a little too much beyond my comfort zone. I, I got into Kiss at seven years old, so I think I, it was a pretty natural progression from Kiss into like Rat or Quiet Riot, that kind of stuff. But I will tell you, Thrash, I was a late bloomer compared to most of my friends. I didn't mm. really start appreciating any of it until 90, and then probably mm. wasn't a full fan of the big four until 94. Now, the, 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 there's some, I could get more detailed to say, well, I, I like some Metallica, some Anthrax, but mm. Slayer was the first band that I started actually buying all their stuff in 1990. Mm. And from there, it okay. just kind of was smaller. So a, a little similar to what you're saying. I, I will tell you this. Uh, at the age of 15, I think I was still under the belief that you could accidentally worship Satan by listening <laughs> to certain records. Probably. Uh, and so, probably. yeah, I was probably a good, you know, five to 10 years away from the revelation that, like, that is all really silly and mm-hmm. stupid. And uh, I can't believe adult, grown up, supposedly, you talked about maturity, supposedly matured mm-hmm. brains were were mm-hmm. actually preaching these, these things. Because maybe the Mormon church wasn't, but plenty of churches were. Of course. I mean, that was that was out. That vibe was out there, but it wasn't like no one slapping my hands yeah. with rulers saying you're listening to Van Halen or something like that. Yeah, my, my, my church was Lutheran, so it was very you okay. know, milk toast, not very hardcore at all. So I, yeah. I also most of the people that my age that went to church liked the same music. So it wasn't like I was getting it there, but you were still mm-hmm. hearing it and devil mm-hmm. worship and stuff of that all that nature came up. But uh, sure. Yeah. Well, let's get into the record, shall we? Uh, okay. Uh, the album opens up with a track from Green River. Now, as we get into each of these artists, I'm going to break down who's in them and what they did, because I think that is one of the fascinating side stories and probably why this is on the top 25. But uh, Green River features Mark Arm, who went on to and is still in Mud Honey, Jeff mm-hmm. Ament and Stone Gossard and Bruce Fairweather, who all went on into Mother Love Bone. And then, of course, Stone and uh, Jeff went on to, to basically uh, form Pearl Jam after uh, uh, Andrew Wood died, who all plays mm-hmm. into the picture here shortly um mm-hmm. the, the opening track is called Ten Thousand things Clocks in at three minutes and thirty-seven seconds. Um, I didn't have a lot of notes in this record. I thought it was pretty good, though. I mean, uh, this song, I should say. Uh, yeah. I, I, I like the way it kind of vibed and feel. I think it's a good opening track. I think this is a fairly well sequenced record, to be honest with you. Um, mm. As far as a compilation, you know, representing Seattle, mm-hmm. you can kind of hear where this is kind of like early Seattle sound. What were your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I would agree with a lot of that. I, um, I again, I should say that. 
almost nothing on here. I don't know that I'll ever listen to this album again. Um, I don't, I didn't dislike it, but it's like I said, it's not my taste or my thing too much. So I don't, nothing did I love. And there's a few things that I didn't like, but this is one of the better songs. I thought his screams in the beginning sounded very Axel. Welcome to the jungle. Like, you know, straight out of that playbook. Um, Green River obviously were one of the more promising, I guess, bands of that ilk because of everybody who graduated and went on to bigger and better things. Mm-hmm. Of all the songs on the album, this is this would probably be in my top three or four. So it's one of the better ones. I'm a big track one person. If okay. you hook me on, tr- if you hook me on track one, I tend to forgive a lot and will you know stick with you for a while. So yeah, I didn't mind this one. No, I, I've been doing kind of a rating on each episode. Uh, I, it seems like uh, there's no consensus on what we should call it instead of stars. Like, should it be Doc Martens or flannel shirts? Is there a grunge term you like? Like, for instance, I, I gave this four stars, so that would be like four flannel shirts. Is there? That's, <laughs> if I if you were to look at my notes next to every song, I gave them X number of flannels. Okay. So yeah, so we're going I with flannel the today thing. then. Okay. So I gave this one three flannels. Okay. Um, and, and you liked it. Okay. Yeah. Well, and again, three, other than one song, three is as high as anything on here gets. Okay. Well, uh, spoilers, John. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Spoilers. Uh, no, it's all good. Um, yeah. After that is a band I actually enjoy quite a bit. Seen them live a bunch of times, and not just when they were uh, accidentally plopped in front of a Kiss show. Uh, the Melvins and the song Scared. still are out doing it and they still feature uh, uh king buzzo and dale crover guitar vocals on king buzzo and dale dale being the drummer they have had a litany of bass players that are basically like a uh, a spinal tap movie as far as the drummer this song is one of the best melvin songs i've ever heard and i'm not familiar with it uh mm. and it's amazing how good they sounded when they were recorded with almost no budget like if you like the Melvins, this doesn't sound like, you know, you know how like, if you ever heard like early demos of like bands you like and they're just kind of raw and kind of get that kind of yeah. d- dissonant tone and, and cheap, this is pretty close to what you get when they hit to the major label. I mean, it's, it, don't get me wrong, it's noticeably different, but it is closer than a lot of these bands get. I like listening to interviews with the Melvins more than I actually like listening to the Melvins because I think they're really interesting guys, very thoughtful. Um, this one was pretty good. I like the original, that opening oh 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 part at the beginning yeah. of the song. 
the vocals get just a little too sludgy and kind of slurry <laughs> for me. Um, I did give this one two flannels. I think I'd bump it up to two and a half, probably. Okay. Yeah. I, I give it five flannels. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, well, I loved yeah. it. Uh, this is a song I'll probably, uh, I don't know, I'll eventually download at some point. But Okay. You know, the reason the Melvins are interesting interviews is because, well, I know for King King Buzzo in general, he has been a straight edge his entire life. He never got yeah. into that whole, you know, heroin chic and stuff. And, you know, they were definitely instrumental in, in de- developing what, what people call grunge, basically. Mm-hmm. That's those, and that's often what these interviews are, are them defending themselves and sort of saying, like, you know, there would without us, you wouldn't have your Nirvana. I hope you, you guys don't realize that, but it's true. And well, Nirvana so, I mean, would like, say that, you know, I mean, uh, absolutely. But, the you know, the Melvins never reap that kind of those rewards necessarily. So, well, anybody familiar with their catalog can can clearly see why there was no <laughs> they're, they're not known for hooks or catchiness. Yeah, um, very but, true. Um, so they're more like the uh, the tone of grunge, whereas like when grunge actually broke, they weren't going to be a band that could really you know bank on that. But um, True. you know, we t- I think we talked it on the Andy Shaw episode because we were talking about the Melvins. Like they were super pumped when their record sold thirty two thousand copies the first week, <laughs> and the, 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 only to find out the record label was like, ah, fuck, this is a bad <laughs> idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, they weren't meant for like long term success, but I, they've found their little niche and they deserve it. And so I'm happy that they have that. Sure. I don't know that I'll go to too many Melvin shows, but uh, other people will. And that's good. <laughs> so, uh, well, they, they, they go back to back because track three is the Melvin's track blessing the operation. This one is a 44 second slammer. Yeah. Uh, when I listen to this one and maybe you can relate, I don't know. I, I do wonder where the line is between something that's actually music and something that's more noise. And um, and I that sounds derisive. I don't mean for it to. The same kind of idea goes into a lot of jazz, especially when you listen to like hard bop and you know the Miles Davis, John Coltrane type stuff. If you aren't a musician yourself, when you listen to that stuff, if you're just a casual music guy like me, you do wonder like they they wrote this on purpose. Like this is <laughs> all this noise is is insti- is uh, intentional that because it just sounds like noise to me but people say it's great and they look like they mean it and i know miles davis is important so i guess these things all matter but they just sound so strange you know and that a lot of this album kind of falls into that territory for me so is this zero flannels for you or does it get one no i'll go two i'll go two flannels i nothing got well one song i'll get to in a little while is a one it's like i don't I don't like it at all. Everything else is kind of this middle ground because I can appreciate what they were trying to do and I appreciate what it, how it matters. I should have probably ranked these more relatively with, against each other. Like, I, this is my favorite song on the album, therefore it deserves a five. But it's not a five when compared to five songs that I like that are a five, you know? So I probably should have done this differently. I gave it two also, believe it or not. Um, oh. Now, the, the, the whole thing with uh, grunge was that it was kind of a slowed down version of punk. Well, this is not slow. This is a mm-hmm. super fast and short classic punk, really. And yeah. I can deal with that. I like a lot of a lot of punk music. You know, I mean, the Misfits are one of my favorite bands, and they have a ton of short songs. Right. But I, I, there still has to be something to pull me in. This does kind of kind of get into a little bit of a a noise. And now that might be because they were called on to to provide four songs 
for the record, mm-hmm. and two of them mm-hmm. clock in in under a minute. So right. who knows? But uh, and we'll get into the reasons why that was in a little bit here. But yeah, um, I'm glad this isn't the type of music that they they pursued. This is a little too kind of upbeat and punky. But it, it's early for them. But again, I honestly think sound wise they were captured pretty clean. And I don't think that about all the albums songs on here. You mentioning punk, I I should differentiate. I love punk rock, but I'm not as into the L.A. hardcore punk of like the Germs and stuff like that as I am the British, more the British stuff that was coming out with like the Damned and things like that. You know, the Sex Pistols or whatever. For whatever reason, the Brits always just have a better ear for melody and hooks to me and what I like than we do. And so that L.A. hardcore stuff of the late 70s, early 80s, which I think preceded obviously a lot of this stuff that was never quite my jam i respect it immensely but it's not the punk that i throw on very often i prefer the british i'm not a huge hardcore guy like i will take the sex pistols over all those uh bands that you mentioned Mm -hmm. from the la scene there but Mm -hmm. i think my favorite well the misfits are easily my favorite punk band i'm starting to come around on the ramones a little bit um yeah and i hate the clash what yeah what sorry uh, the only band that's ever mattered how explain <laughs> yourself how what is not to like about the clash i can understand not liking all of the clash but why hating the clash they just insist upon themselves john what what <laughs> that's that's bad like the the clash believe in themselves too much for you is that it no they insist upon themselves insist yeah. yeah, look, they just never liked the sound. Uh, it, that's really all it comes down to. The songs never clicked with me. I hate fucking Joe Strummer's voice. I just, Oh, oh. And Joe's it, a god. Jeez, that's uh, wild. Okay, well. Yeah, it, it, we'll just file that under one of my other million of okay. unpopular opinions. Uh, Got it, okay. <laughs> okay. I love you coming at me for it. That's uh, That's what we need, man. <laughs> Good. Good. All right. Up next on track four is Malfunction. Now, this features Andrew Wood on lead vocals, who went on to form Mother Love Bone with uh, the guys from uh, uh, Green River. By the way, Green River, named after the Green River uh, killer, a serial killer from the Seattle area. Oh, how about that? Um, a guy named uh, Regan Heger. He ended up in Stone Gossard's side project called Brad. Did you Do you know the story behind how they got the name Brad? Uh, I've probably heard it, but I don't remember. Tell me. Okay, they were going to call the band Shame, but it turns out there was um, already a band named Shame, and mm-hmm. the Pearl Jam was big at this point, so Stone had some money, and he offered to buy the name from him, and they refused to. The guy who owned the actual copyright, his name is Brad. So they <laughs> named the band Brad, and their first record is called Shame. So, oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. So, a very very uh, grunge uh, thing to do. Uh, mm-hmm. Kevin Wood, uh, Andrew's brother, was also in the band as a guitar player. This song is called uh, With Your Heart, Not Your Hands.
Uh, I like this track. I thought uh, it, it's it's a little loose and a little sloppy. Um, mm-hmm. So you really don't get that vibe of uh, Andrew Wood's vocal styling on this, and, and and his the lyrics that he ended up writing for Mother Love Bone were you know basically. Uh, just some of the most unique stuff you could get. He ended up developing a very great, you know, melodic uh, ability and stuff of that nature for fans of Mother Love Bone. I'm, I'm referencing, but you don't really hear it too much here. But this is early, you know. This is good, you know, mm-hmm. of three years before that would even come out. I gave this one three flannels. Mm. I gave this one two flannels. I didn't know who they were, and when I listened to it, I thought that sounds exactly like Andrew Wood. That has to be an early band of his. Turns out it mm, was. Nice. I do like the hand claps. Any song with hand yeah. claps is made better. <laughs> um, and you don't hear a lot of hand claps and you know thrash or early grunge like this. Uh, one thing, and and uh, Andrew every now and then falls into a little bit of a Mark Bolin voice affectation, oh, which I love T Rex. Nice so I'm that's kind of a fun little accent there. I am curious. So, yeah, this song didn't do much for me, but I find it so interesting because a lot of those people swear on the fact that Andrew Young or Andrew Wood, I'm sorry, had like major star potential. He was so charismatic and was going places and of everybody, he was going to be the star and he died before anyone really got to know them. And so you just never would know how much potential this guy had. And I I don't necessarily hear that. I do think his voice he has a voice that probably would have made sense on some of the '80s hair metal type stuff, but uh, mm. I don't. What do you think? Did you ever? Do you know much about them? Do you I, ever? Have you ever seen a video that would make you think this guy has star quality? I, I I know exactly where you're coming from and the type of hype that you've heard, and I love Mother Love Bone, and it's it, to me it it uh, the one full record they did in the EP. There are things that I go back to on a somewhat regular basis because I just really enjoy the music. But to me, they have the same commercial appeal of, let's say, like a King's X. Like, oh, okay. There's people who are huge King's X fans, and they're always like, they're so underrated. To me, that's how they would have ended up. If they would have released mm. five or six. They would have maybe still been going, and they would have been one of those bands like, oh, you don't know Mother Love Bone? Like, everything from their name to their image to his image to his voice to their songs didn't really, you know, to me, it doesn't, it, none of it uh, reeks of crossover or big, mm. big pop potential. I just okay. don't, I'm with you there, is all I'm getting at. I think yeah. it might be a little bit of like, you know, posterity and hindsight. I don't think they were on the verge of, of breaking Seattle ahead of Nirvana. With with this with any of their music, it's just it's just not there. The but mm-hmm. to, I still love it. I think it's some of the best stuff out there from the, from that whole scene. But yeah. I, I love the Melvins, and I understand why they didn't sell ten million copies of any mm-hmm. record or all of them combined. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've never. I've always been one. I've always wondered like why. What was it about Andrew that made everyone say that? So it sounds like there was something there, but it probably wouldn't have crossed over into the mainstream very much yeah who knows maybe that like yeah. uh he was the one guy that everybody hated and then when he oh. died you know they, they, they all show up at the funeral and say nice things <laughs> true too okay. soon uh, maybe maybe <laughs> uh i love i love throwing conspiracies out there um especially yeah. with no foundation uh, well, track five is a band called Skinyard. Now, I'm supposed to be talking to uh, um, one of the members of this band tomorrow, Jack Andino, who went on to produce a bunch of artists on this list. 
Uh, a day after I first reached out to you, we did an episode covering the Deep Six Various Artists thing, and I stumbled across that, that your band Skinyard was on there with a couple tracks. Uh, any memories of, of putting that whole thing together, how it came up you know, to be the project it is? Well, those are probably the least successful Skinyard tracks we ever recorded or released, and uh, they probably were the first things we recorded professionally. That was before I started doing my own recordings. Um, but it was where I met Chris Hanzik, who was doing the um, he was doing the Deep Six comp, and he was also he had just had a studio that had he had lost his building because the landlord had sold it, and while we were in the studio recording my band, he said, "Hey, I'm looking for a building." to open my studio again. And I said, oh, there's a studio right by my house that just went out of business. And uh, we became partners, and that became Reciprocal Recording in 1986. So the fact that he was recording my band Skinyard for his Deep Six compilation record was kind of, you know, that kind of was what put us together and got this other phase of activity going. You know, when we were both working out of this building as Reciprocal Recording, you know, some of the Deep Six bands immediately came and started recording there with us. And, uh, it, you know, Sub Pop started about a year, a year later, and, and everything went from there. Everybody in the band, like yourself, of course, is notable for so much stuff. Uh, Daniel uh, House, he would actually go on to be co-owner of CZ, if my information is correct. And Matt Cameron, who everybody knows, went on to Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. Um, right. Ben McMillan, I couldn't find anything on. Did he kind of give up music after... Uh, Skinyard? No, he was in Grunt Truck for crying out loud. That's... No, I mean you know who Grunt Truck was, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I mean that was his. That was, I mean Grunt Truck was Skinyard's third drummer plus Ben McMillan, our singer. Okay. Um, you know, and Tommy from the Accused, and uh, you know they exi- they coexisted with Skinyard in our last year and a half of existence, and then uh, when Skinyard ended. Uh, you know, Gruntruck became Ben's entire focus, and they got signed to Roadrunner. They made those, um, well, I recorded those albums, actually. Uh, There's three Gruntruck albums. One of them only came out, like, a couple years ago. It was, like, a posthumous release. But but then Ben is actually much, much more well-known for Gruntruck than he is for Skinyard, because Gruntruck was on a much higher profile record label than we were. I, that doesn't surprise me because I, I I think maybe if I had heard the name Skinyard before, but I, I I wasn't familiar with the music prior to getting into this Deep Six record, which was actually a fascinating listening going in and seeing because there are so many moving parts that that would as far as members of bands you know that would go on to do other things that really would define Seattle sound, and this was like you know four or five years before things really blew up. Oh yeah, no, it's true, and I'm frankly, you would get a much better picture of Skinyard by listening to anything but the Deep Six record. Deep <laughs> Six record is, it's a complete anomaly as far as our sound goes. We completely changed our, our whole direction after you, those initial two songs. You definitely stick out on that record uh, yeah, compared to other bands. Yeah, kind of a, almost proggy. Um, yeah, at least by comparison, that's for sure. We were a little proggy at the time, but compared with Soundgarden and Alice in Chains later, much less so. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, particularly later Soundgarden stuff, uh, like as of Bad Motor Fingers, got way more proggy than Skinyard ever was. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, but it, it, so so Jack and Dino is is in the band. He he of course produced Nirvana's Bleach record and uh, a, a ton of bands that uh, oh we've all heard of like uh, like well Green River, um, Screaming Trees, Babes in Toyland, that kind of stuff. Um, this is almost a proggy uh, sounding song to me. At least definitely out of this collection of songs, this is the most yeah. prog rock. It sounds like a band on the verge of kind of establishing their own sound, and that's the way it, it kind of came off to me. I thought the guitars and drums had a little bit of a Husker Du sound, but that might be my Minneapolis ear. This one, this song was my favorite of all of them. And oh, nice. Skin Yard, Skin Yard and You Men were the two bands that I didn't know anything about going in before listening to this. But I liked what I heard. I, I have, I might track down a Skin Yard album or go a little deeper on them. I did find, so I'd give this one probably three and a half flannels. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, uh, I thought the voice, the lead singer's voice was interesting because it would almost go into a little bit of a croon. You saying yeah. like them trying to find, being a little proggy and trying to find their sound. That's exactly right. Because they stand out to, uh, amidst all these other bands for, for that very reason. There's some, there's more going on here. It's not just thrashing, sludgy, quick. It's, it's a little more thoughtful. Wyland in his voice as well and I know you know you went on BJ's recently talking about Stone Temple Pilots that's been sort of a hot topic lately I wonder if there was a little bit of an influence there if it's just coincidental yeah I like I really like the chorus in this one I just thought it was different it stood out from the rest in a good way and so Skin Yard is something I'm going to pay more attention to Uh, for those scoring at home because I don't think I mentioned it I gave it three flannels okay and on track six uh, Soundgarden with the song Heretic
popular song title, by the way. Uh, yeah. Just in bands in general. Um, this uh-huh. is very raw. I I had never heard this song before. Um, uh, it is unmistakably Soundgarden. It it does sound like it might fit on uh, either their two EPs that they released or Ultra Mega OK. Probably not that big a shock considering those are what they're doing right after this. I had a really interesting thought here because this song, within this song, are it show there's basically two guitar tones here. Mm-hmm. If you start from the very beginning, there's kind of a dark and doomy kind of guitar tone that to me sounds more like The Cure, and I love The Cure. But then it goes. But then throughout the song, and there are parts of the song that maintain that that sound. But then it goes into these more heavy metal riffs once in a while, and that song I find, or that sound I find more unpleasant. So I find this this song is real is a real dichotomy to me because it represents two sounds that are so polar opposite within my like pleasure spectrum inside. Hmm. One moment it sounds like a band or a sound or a, a band that I love, and the next. It sounds like it's off-putting, and it sounds like the heavy metal, hardcore stuff that I don't like. But it's all in one sound, one song. So anyway, I thought, hope I'm explaining that right. But that's yeah. what this song does to me: is it, it represents both sides. Something I really enjoy. Some a sound that's very pleasing and a sound that's very unpleasant. I gave it uh, four flannels. Okay, I gave it three flannels. All right. The side one wraps up with another Soundgarden. Uh, this one is called "Tears to Forget." <laughs> This ended up on the Screaming Life EP, uh, which came out shortly, I don't know, within a year or two after this. Um, honesty, God, again, I'm just hearing the, the tonal qualities of Husker Du again. Um, mm. This is a quick song, but uh, forgettable for me. Uh, so yep. it, it, I didn't feel any different here in the version from this record. So. Same. Two flannels. Yeah, I wrote down, <laughs> same here. Two flannels. I wrote down Forgetful as well. Uh, this is where the this album goes into kind of a lull period for the next few songs where they all sort of blur together for me. I don't love any of them for the next yeah. little while. Um, I am, I mean, no one sounds like Chris. He's got one of the greatest voices in rock oh, yeah. history, let alone grunge history. It's all such a shame. I'm glad he eventually found his sound, but this song, see, like for instance, we're going to touch on this. I think later, the single soundtrack is one of my favorite albums of all time. Mm, yeah. Um, but my least favorite song on that album is Soundgarden's Birth Ritual. And it's because he's in, he's more in the screaming phase than he is like the singer phase. And I don't oh, find he was so good at it though, John. God. I know. I know. I know. See, I don't want I don't care about Louder Than Love and Ultra Mega Okay and stuff. I like it when it became a little sleeker and a little glossier. And I know Man. that that means I'm, you know, not as punk or as cool, but that's how I like it. You know? when, uh, no, to to sidetrack a little bit, the beginning of the song "Loud Love" 
when it's just mm. like that that little riff and then you hear kind of like this high pitched like feedback that all all of a sudden kind of morphs into like like it's it's fading up right mm-hmm. and that that feedback all of a sudden becomes like half feedback half Chris Cornell going The greatest rock intros, like literally every time I hear that, I, I there's there's well not every time, uh, there are too many times. Let's put it that way, where mm. I'll just rewind once the song kicks in just to hear that again. Man, he could he could scream melodically, mm-hmm. and that's not something a lot of guys can do. And it's like you don't know where the guitar feedback ends and Chris begins. If you unless, if you really put an ear to it, you'll hear it. But okay, you, you should let yourself go and, and enjoy the, the illusion. I but. love recommendations like that. I'll absolutely do it. Before we flip the side too, let's get into a few uh, topics. You kind of talked about it. Yeah. If people want to do math at home, but how old would you have been in 1991? 1991 was the year I graduated from high school. Okay. So I turned 18 that summer. All right. And we've already established that you're more mature than me, so you would have been, you know, uh, farther (laughs) along mentally as well at that point. Of course, yes. What were you listening to? Like, what was your go-to music in in 1991? Yeah, that was still the, uh, you know, the 80s alternative and stuff like that. That was really what I was into. We moved. So when you mentioned Gene Loves Jezebel, that was kind of your wheelhouse. And I assume, like, Edie Burkell was hot around this time? Uh, Yeah. I You know, I had the second Edie Burkell album. I liked that. I liked... uh, in excess, I remember. I think for oh, the, that's right. Yeah, I liked in excess a lot. I, I mean, truth be told, I like a little bit of everything. I can handle everything, and I think probably back then I was probably really getting into. Well, I was really into hip hop for a lot of high, a lot of high school. Fear of a Black Planet from Public Enemy is one of my favorite albums ever, and that never left my car like my entire senior year of mm. high school. Stuff like that. I don't like hip hop as much anymore, but I do like classic hip hop that I grew up on back then. I really I'm down for everything. But my sweet spot is that 80s British alternative. And I would say like 70s, early 80s R&B. OK. Um, Earth, Wind and Fire and stuff like that. Those bands, I, you know, those are the bands where I want everything they've ever done. You know, I don't just need a greatest hits. Some of these, like Soundgarden, I'm fine with a greatest hits album. Okay. Or Stone oh. Temple Pilots. Ooh, I'm sorry. I know. Yeah, I know. I know. I I do like Soundgarden a little bit more, but like it, I'm fine with just the Stone Temple Pilots greatest hits. I don't really need yeah, okay. anything more than that. But um, there are other bands like Simple Minds or Tears for Fears or Earth, Wind and Fire or Brothers Johnson or whatever, where I want everything they've ever done. You know, a lot of those 80s alternative acts really got a boost from grunge popping in 91. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, it, even in excess, I think, became a little bit. Uh, uh, they were they were doing pretty good on their own, but they, I think it helped them out. Uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. There's a bunch. R.E.M. R.E.M. is another one yeah, that uh, definitely, uh, definitely kind of rode that crest. And, uh, mm-hmm. and actually, kind of grunge kind of turned into more of that kind of stuff with bands like Belly and I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other examples, but. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it brought, you, you know this, it brought the underground into the mainstream. 120 and, uh, minutes the, took the place of, like, Headbangers Ball, basically. Very true. And I am such that I preferred these bands once they went mainstream versus what they were in the underground. And that's just probably because my ear is more attuned to shades and colors and layers and synthesizers and saxophones and, and guitar solos, too. All mm-hmm. of it, you know? I just like a glossier sound. 
I, th- I think what we're missing right now in music is that, like, when a band first pops, they already sound polished. You know, there's mm-hmm. all these preset recording thing- techniques that mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. ruin the era that would have this kind of sound. I like it all. I like hearing a yeah. d- band develop. Like, I wasn't mad when Metallica cut their hair. I, the mm-hmm. Black Album didn't piss me off. I love the transition. I love to see bands grow and do things different. I even like it when I don't like it. I like the fact that they're trying something. I right. the only time I ever really question it is when it's a combination of two things, bad and chasing a trend. Like mm. but I don't care if you chase a trend if you nail it. Mm-hmm. I it's when you don't that I have an issue with it. And I also don't mind that uh, you you just branch out and do stuff, but if bad music yeah. is bad music. And just because you you know, you you tried something different and it didn't work doesn't mean you were wrong for trying. I I think yeah. I think people should be a little more I don't know, open to the idea that like it should be enough to say, I don't like that record, and then move mm-hmm. on with your life. It doesn't have to be the worst fucking album of all time. Right, right. Yeah, I don't uh, I do not do well with those grand sweeping platitudes like that. <laughs> and I, it, ever, especially ever since starting the podcast, too, where I've just become so hypersensitive to what the artists was were trying to do and what their lives are like and what their careers are like. Anything I don't like, I I just can't bring myself to say that it's bad. Or now there are bands that I think are terrible, and we're going to talk about one in a little while here. <laughs> but um, but I recognize that that's just my taste, and it's okay. You know, I uh, I'm not I'm saying it's not for me. Not that it's like it has no value. There's well, a big difference, and they're just opinions, right? I mean, we yeah. can all like I consider you a friend, even though you you, you just tore my tore me to shreds over the clash. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to be. That's not going to keep me up tonight. Something else will. But right. uh, speaking of sweeping declarations that that are made that are inaccurate, I don't know what it was like in Salt Lake City. So that's what I want to hear from you. But for, mm. from from my perspective, you know, I was you know a freshman in college when all this stuff hit. Um, mm-hmm. That was the I was the prime audience. That was the prime time. And even in Rochester, Minnesota. Minnesota, it was almost like a light switch. Things mm-hmm. changed very quickly. I don't think that is undersold. That ba- mm. basically, grunge did go from it did go from this one kind of rock music to grunge, you know, Nirvana, yeah. Pearl Jam ish kind of stuff. I mean, uh, the Pearl Jam ten record dominated the summer of ninety two. Uh, yeah. uh, what was it like where you were at? Did you feel the same way, or was it more gradual? Well, it's interesting you say that because. Um in March of 1992 is when I went on my two-year Mormon mission, and I went to Michigan on my mission. I missed almost the whole thing. Oh wow! I remember, like, like I said, I lived in England right before, right after high school, and right before I left on my mission. And I remember very well seeing Nirvana first come out with "Smells Like Teen Spirit," and I remember thinking, "This isn't going to go anywhere." <laughs> and uh, but then it became a thing. Nailed he, it. But he, yes, but he he committed suicide like a week after I got home or two weeks after I got home. And so, I mean, it really began and ended the entire spectrum of the real part of it all happened in those two years when I was not allowed to listen to music. So I would hear it and uh, you'd hear it coming out of car stereos. You'd be at someone's home and then, have it playing in the background or you'd be walking around a college campus and someone would be coming out of a dorm room or whatever. So I heard it all. Uh um, But it was the peak of the initial wave that was making it a new and interesting and unique thing was subsiding when I got home. Uh, I remember so well Spoon Man from Soundgarden being one of the first videos that I saw when I could finally listen to music again. That's too bad. Well, that was, I kind of like that song actually. (laughs) Um, But I understand if you're a, Soundgarden diehard and you think that's kind of a weird yeah, tune, but anyway that was what was like I jumped into that 
So it had gotten glossy by the time I got home. Okay. I mean, that's kind of your cup of tea. Um, one of the most interesting things about you, I think, is that you come from it from such a unique perspective. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of what I was hoping for with you bringing you on, basically, at any, at any time that if we ever have you back for anything, it's always just about like getting someone else to kind of share their experience and, and show the world that it isn't all the same. So you missed how, how much this blew up. That is incredible to me. Yeah. It really is. Did you see um, the J.C. Penney ads where they would sell like you know, mm-hmm. you know, flannel jeans for fifty bucks, or not flannel, <laughs> or grunge jeans for fifty bucks? I should say. No, but I do remember shopping in malls for white collared shirts and ties and seeing you know mannequins dressed up this way. So, and Pearl Jam was starting to become a thing right as I was leaving, and so yeah, there was just a two year stretch there where you're not allowed to listen to music or go to movies or read regular books or whatever it is, and I. I uh, I didn't I wasn't 100 percent on some of that. Not listening to music for two years was really difficult. In fact, we um, we were teaching a college kid, teach, you know, teaching the gospel or whatever to this mm-hmm. college kid. And he liked the single soundtrack had just come out. And there were times when we'd go teach him and we'd just <laughs> let him keep playing it in the background while we kept teaching him or whatever, because it was so delicious. And so that's probably why that album means so much to me is because I was hearing it at a time when I wasn't supposed to, and it was cutting through everything and just hitting me really hard. And one last question before we get into side two that I'm asking everybody, did grunge kill hair metal? Absolutely. Yep. No question about it. Now they may have flamed out on their own eventually at some time, some time, just like everything else does, you know, nothing stays popular forever. But, and I, I say this all the time, the nineties killed fun. And yes, <laughs> yes, it, you know, it may, it put this focus more on, you know, artistry and heaviness and actually playing your instruments and stripping out the synthesizers and the saxophones and the, the facade and the gloss. And, you know, it's about taking all of that away and really focusing on the, the true kind of internal nature of it all. And I get all that, but it's unfortunate because I feel like the fun, the freewheeling fun experimentation of what you saw in the eighties and before has never fully come back because it kind of killed Irony. It made all of those people, especially '80s hair metal bands, look silly. Yeah. If you were going to continue in that path, on that path after Nirvana or after grunge came along, you were going to look really, really foolish. And so, yes, it absolutely killed all of that. Nowadays, I would much rather listen to an '80s hair metal album than I would Nevermind, because what gets what you find out after the fact is that there are great pop songs, great hooks great instrumentation and all of that, but the facade of it all ruined it, you know, or it it made it seem lesser than, and grunge came along and just wiped it off the map. Good point. But now it, it works. It matters again. Yeah, but we've never really lost that snark from that time, have we? No, we haven't. That's what I mean. Yes, that's exactly right. We have never been able to recapture the innocence that the 80s brought to the world because it was true experimentation. It was, true, it was truly starting new things and different things and unique things from a very real, honest place. And, but we, we lost all of that irony when the nineties came around and made us hyper aware of each other and our feelings and how we look and how we dress and how we present ourselves. We've never been able to recapture that. And it's sad because that's, that's when things were at their fun, most fun, I should say. 
I wonder if it's a shitty weather thing because, you know, Minnesota, um, you know, like the, the bands that are famous from here, you know, Husker Du and, and the replacements, especially even Soul Asylum, they all have that kind of dry wit to everything they approach musically. And, well, Seattle is not exactly known for its uh, summer vacations. You know, it's rainy. No. You, you drink coffee and, you know, it's cold. Uh, so I no. don't know. I wonder if that has something to do with it. There's almost like a more realistic view on the world or, or less, a less open and positive view. You, but mm-hmm. uh, you're right. Yeah, the, there'll never be another Van Halen. There'll never be no. <laughs> that experimentation that you're talking about. To me, describes all the music of the '80s. And like, mm-hmm. and the one thing that we're missing now is individuality and like being able to tell one artist from another. And not to be sexist, but sadly, this applies even more to female vocalists nowadays. Totally. Basically, totally. like you know, uh, uh, someone like Cindy Lauper, and I dare say, don't 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 yell at me, Stevie Nicks mm-hmm. wouldn't cut it today because mm-hmm. they don't sound like Ariana Grande, who sounds right. like there's that song that uh, Ariana Grande did with like uh, Jesse Jane and uh, uh, Nicki Minaj, but but it's like it's a duet, and you can't tell mm-hmm. when one ends and the other one begins. That's so true. That kind of individuality is long gone. It's a uh, it's a shame. Back to <laughs> hard shift. We're gonna go back to deep six now. On side two, we get another malfunction song. Uh, more more Andrew Wood. To me, this one sounds more like him when he sings, and that's uh, mm. "Stars in You." My least favorite song in the album by far. This one is a one flannel for me. It wow. sounds going, yeah, going back to the kind of scronky hard bop jazz. Is it noise or is it music? Kind of <laughs> thoughts from before. It really just sounds like sludgy noise to me. Um, it sounds like something that was probably a lot more fun to record than mm-hmm. it is for anyone to listen to. But that's just me coming from my own perspective. So yeah, this you just easily, describe my entire catalog, by the way. I could I could see that. I could see that. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is easily my least favorite song in the album. I get this three- is what, like I go back to what I was saying. This is we're in kind of a uh, we're in kind of the doldrums as far as the next few songs on this album go. Well, me. it is side two. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, I get, I liked it more than you. I gave it three flannels, but I didn't like it a lot. Um, I do think it sounds more like you hear Andrew Wood pop through it. There's a couple of redeeming moments, but it is so poorly recorded. And by recorded, I mean played. Um, mm. the, 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 they're not in time. I'm guessing this might be the drunkest performance on the record. <laughs> Um, I'm going off my own experience and doing this stuff. When I hear this, uh, this is, it doesn't sound like the drummer and the guitar player and the singer are all really doing things, but they're all doing it at the same time. 
but we're mm-hmm. not really hearing it cohese, you know, or um, not uh, uh, cohese. That's not a word. We're not hearing <laughs> them gel. Like, it should be. Yeah. Okay. I thought, boy, it takes balls to say that word because I don't think it's real, but it should be. Good for you. <laughs> I like that, Backo. Uh, I, I have a big uh, um, uh, affection for Barney Stinson. Uh, for mm. your How I Met Your Mother fans, that might make sense. Okay. But uh, no, um, but again, this has that raw, unproduced feel. And when you know where things are going, I kind of like the idea that you can listen to this and then mm. kind of know, like, oh, this is eventually going to be Pearl Jam, Mother Love Bone, that kind of stuff. So um, I, it, probably why it got three flannels for me is just because I'm a, such a fan of the, the latter work. Thinking about what the bands that this may have sparked or that came from this is not enough to justify <laughs> this little bit of noise. This is quite terrible. Can't, I thought I really... can't wait to hear what you think about the next track, then, with the Melvins with uh, mm-hmm. uh, Grinding Process. This one is only, it's only maybe slightly better. I would probably say this is like one and a half flannels. It's more <laughs> of the sludgy yelling that we've, you know, we've decided, I've decided is kind of a hallmark of the, of the Melvins here. They're just not for me. One thing that, and I want to mention this when you sent me that article about researching this album, I did think it was interesting that these songs were all seemingly recorded for the sake of the compilation. Whereas yeah. a lot of compilations are, songs that are being pulled from albums that exist or singles or whatever that's you know to compile but these were all recorded for this album and i thought that was really interesting you know there's a big difference there i think it might be why they sound somewhat similar and it does kind of fit you know it doesn't sound like a movie soundtrack it does kind of sound like a bunch of bands recording in the same studio at least yeah yeah that's true i just think there's a difference there but these people these songs were intentionally created and recorded with this compilation in mind rather than a curator out there is like, well, we need a little bit of Melvin's. We need a little sound garden. Let's pick and choose a couple things, put them out. And so people can see an example of what this music's all about. There was a different thought process going on that, that I think is kind of interesting, but no, I don't, I don't care for this song. It, it did mention in that article that, um, the um uh, the, the the Chris Hansek character uh, the guy who put all this together he did lean heavily on Green River's um uh 
uh, Mark Arm and Jeff Ament to kind of put together the the bands for the compilation. So um, I don't know. There was some thought put into it. Is all I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, to me, I, I gave it four flannels. Uh, I Whoa. again, I, but as a Melvin's fan, I'm like, this is actually. I kind of wish they would have done a little more of this. This is pretty close to a standard arrangement for a song when you consider how the Melvins kind of get. Um, mm. uh, and you can actually hear in this song why they are so often cited as kind of like uh, one of the origin bands for grunge. Yeah, I could see that definitely. That's not going to make me listen to them, but sure. I can see that. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I don't feel that way about the next track, which is another Melvin song called She Wants. To me, this is uh, I don't know, a worse version of the 40-second song inside one. This is a 40-second song inside two by the Melvins. I, don't know, I gave it I gave it two flannels. Yeah, I did too. So there were, I wanted to read a couple of quotes that sort of um, <laughs> awesome. about this. That, yeah, that, that sum up maybe how I feel about some of this. I believe it was uh, the handset guy in the article you sent me at the very end. He says, to the, this, now keep in mind, this is the guy who made mm-hmm. this album. He says, today I believe it is best to just look at it and don't play it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, yeah, okay. I could uh, I could kind of see that. And then if you read the review of it in allmusic.com, written by Kathleen C. Fennessy, she says, Deep Six, which works better on a historical level yes. than an aesthetic one. And I would say, yeah, that's true. And I'm sure that's why this album is on the list anywhere, because it is an important piece of history. It's just not that much fun to listen to, to me. Um, well, let's get to track 11. Um, this is Skin Yard, uh, the song The Birds. I'm sitting in a rather small room. My walls have nothing to say. I've memorized every hole Squinting eyes all day Pull me up and bring me home For the night I cannot stay Back to Skinner, I should say. Uh, I like the saxophone. It almost—it literally almost has the same melody of the sax at the beginning of "You Belong to the City" by Glenn Frey. Ooh, interesting. Okay, I'm gonna have to listen to it with new ears then. Yeah, I like the scronky sax in this one too. I give this one three flannels. I don't know about you, but I did think it was interesting how I mentioned earlier about his croon. He seems to be aping outright either Iggy or Bowie on this <laughs> song specifically, which I'm okay with because I love both those artists. But it, um, it it was practically plagiarism, if you ask me. Yeah, I'm I, I'm not vibing on the way he approached this as a singer. Um, I get where you're going. Uh, again, to me, like uh, it it's proggy. 
It it, yeah. it sticks yeah. out like the other tune. But I so I, I wrote down prog punk if I made a new term. Mm-hmm. Um, I gave it fle- uh, three flannels. Yeah, me too. I, I like I said, I'm going to have to check out a little bit more of Skinyard. They definitely stand out on this compilation as being something different and unique, and I like that. I overrated the next song. I gave it three flannels, but I mm-hmm. overrated it because I it's one of my favorite Soundgarden songs that eventually it was on the Ultra Mega OK record. It is probably one of the best songs on that album. This is this sounds this might be one of the worst recorded songs on the on this record. So it's like a cassette four track demo sound quality when I listen to it. But it's a song All Your Lies. <laughs> on the guitar it almost sounds like they basically direct recorded the guitar and for those at home typically the guitar is recorded with a microphone in front of a a speaker um this sounds like they just kind of like took it they skipped the speaker and went right into the board with a direct cable Mm. and that typically has kind of a a a more compressed butthole kind of tight sound and and (laughs) and and then they threw on like they threw in like a chorus pedal in, in the pathway or a flanger or something and i just didn't um i don't care for any of that other than for the historical point, almost what you were talking about a minute ago, I enjoy kind of hearing a younger, rawer version of a band I love kind of mm-hmm. still finding their way. And that's why it gets three stars, because I do think it's an amazing song. You just wouldn't know it by listening to this recording. So one thing, well, a couple things. One, I think it's really interesting that you know what a butthole sounds like, apparently, <laughs> according to your last little bit there. And secondly, Absolutely. Uh, uh, secondly this song i i didn't love it i'll give it three flannels too that's probably generous this song of all of them sounds almost the most like a traditional song like i can hear a traditional structure going on underneath all this sludge and that i thought was kind of an interesting little uh little bit of trivia it uh at this point in the album my stamina is running a little low. These last <laughs> few are kind of like, which ones are those again? Oh, yeah, that's the one that does this. Okay. So anyway, I um, if I were to have gotten this compilation back in the day, I don't think I would have come away thinking I need to know a lot more about the Soundgarden band. They, they kick ass. I don't think I would have thought that way. Coming into the 13th track, and uh, the overall 13th, um, Green River, their song Your Own Best Friend. Now, this one's a bit of a monster, but it turns out largely because of wasted crap at the end, but it's 6 minutes and 21 seconds. Um, this definitely sounds more like Mud Honey than Pearl Jam, considering it's kind of a, a combination of those artists. Uh, I can't help but notice that uh, how up front the bass is, and I think that has... 
early signs that you know because you know Jeff Amenta is a, a, a fairly regarded bass player, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that that I don't think that's by accident. I think uh, I think he was probably might have been the best uh, I don't know musician in the band even back then. You know, you mentioning that I listened to this a few times too, obviously. And last night, my wife was like, "Why are you listening to this? It's so..." And I was like, "I know, I know. It's for a podcast. I swear, I'm almost done." Yeah. But when I, uh, I had, I was, I had which I was wife in headphones. Ah, number one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other six are in separate houses nice. on my compound. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Can't wait to yeah. visit. Oh yeah, I got I got plenty for everybody. Um, anyway. <laughs> So she commented on how unpleasant it was. And I was like, yeah, I agree. But when I was getting ready to talk to you and I mentioned having it on in the background, I was listening in headphones and that's when I found it more pleasurable. So you're right. Maybe there's something to that. This song, I will give three, fr- three flannels as well. You're right. If, oh, I get, I get I it four. I, sorry. Oh, you did. Okay. I'm sorry. So three flannels for me. One thing I thought was really interesting is that this song sounds a little more punky, a little speedy, even though it's the longest song in the album. It sounds, yeah. at least the beginning part sounds more like a punk song, you know, very quickly, you know, quick chords and played really quickly and all that. So again, I, it, it, honestly, it's kind of a song that kind of gets a little blurry for me after a while, but it, uh, it's not so bad. I'll go three flannels. The, the ending outro reminded me of the last song on, uh, Allison Shane's sap, that same outro there where they just had all this kind of weird crap going on. Um, mm. So if that resonates with anybody, but um, the album closes out with the U-Men. Now, supposedly they were the biggest band in the area at the time of the recording. And uh, I, I, according to the research I did, they kind of did this as a favor to the other bands on the record, mm-hmm. which is why mm-hmm. they only have one song on here. <laughs> funny thing is that like out of the U-Men you're looking at their lineup they're the one band that really nobody in it that I could find did much else uh, right. it, it, this is it they were the U-Men yeah. and they all went on to work at some logging company apparently 
<laughs> yeah, I thought the same thing. I mean, this is it's it really harkens back to a band like Revan Horton Heat. Uh, that kind of revved up rockabilly, like X or something like that. Mm, yeah. uh, a little rockabilly goes a long way for me. I really have to be in the mood. I did appreciate that this song was different than everything else. No other rockabilly is not a term we've thrown around for any of the other songs. Yep. Um, I don't know that I would have come away from this thinking, boy, you men are the best band on this album. I got to <laughs> know more about you men. But whatever. It was kind of a different splash there at the end, which was a nice kind of welcome thing. But So I give it three flannels, but I... It's not, you know, I, at this point, I'm kind of glad this album is mercifully over. Well, it's time to get to our closing thoughts, John. I'm going to kind of let you take the lead on this. Just a reminder, this was released on CZ Records, which was an album they labeled that kind of preceded Sub Pop as far as being the Seattle sound. Sub Pop was a fanzine, apparently, at this time, where you could, mm-hmm. like, subscribe to tapes where they, they would send them to you or something like that. I'm a little fuzzy on all that stuff, but he, uh, the, the, the owner uh, of the founder, Chris Hanzak, he actually opened his own recording studio called Reciprocal, and uh, it was very popular because it only cost 10 bucks an hour to record there. He uh, The studio, like, lost their lease or something like that by the time this record was made. So that's why it was recorded at Ironwood Studios. But him and that uh, uh, Tina Cassell founded CZ Records pretty much just to release this album. Then it kind of grew from there. It seems like they both kind of checked out shortly after this. Now, mm-hmm. Tina paid for the album uh, recording costs at $2,500 with the idea that they would never recoup it. Now, eventually, after, you know, it, it, sat, it didn't do well. Um, and then it sat around for a while. And then once Nirvana blew up, you know, in 91, by 94, they did it work to deal with AM to re release it with a new cover, but basically the exact same music. It's not something I'm going to pull up Discogs and pay for the highest priced copy I can find, but I'm probably going to put it on my, like, eh, let me just see if they have it kind of yeah. browsing list. John, what, what are your overall thoughts? Well, I've kind of touched on it before. I think it's a I think it's a very important historical document of what was happening in this place at this time. Yeah. If Seattle hadn't become the hotbed that it would five years later or whatever it was, I don't know that any of this this probably would have just been lost to time. I mean, who knows? Omaha might have just as interesting a compilation to be made if the in the 80s and 90s of bands that were important then. But because 311 didn't make Omaha a hotbed, (laughs) no one cares about that compilation. But people care about this one. There's a drop. Yeah. Yeah. So, I I mean, for historical purposes, as you mentioned, a high school for what would go on, the graduates would go on to do important things and put a place on the map. It, it, It is an important historical document. That doesn't necessarily mean that it, it's very good, or these are the best examples, and maybe for the Melvins, but for the best examples of what these <laughs> bands could do, you know, uh, so many of them would be better or do better things on other albums. So overall, I would give it probably three flannels, you know, if, uh, for enjoyment purposes, I'd give it like one and a half. And for historical purposes, I'd give it four and a half. And so we'll cut it right down the middle. I, I do think it is just a perfect time capsule. Um, and and I, I'll just all the things you said are the reasons why. Um, I also think that I, with, with, the, with looking back, there's been music scenes and, and people might scream at me L.A., but honestly, L.A. was filled with people coming from Pennsylvania and all that kind of stuff. There has never been before and after a scene like Seattle, not only in the sense of like all this, like these groundbreaking multi-platinum generational iconic type artists being in one place 
and 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 just crossing over each other while they found their way. Um, there, there will never be it again. Um, we're yeah. just not. In that, the, the, it is now a kind of a global world when it comes to music, and uh, some dick in fucking you know Pickering, uh, Ontario, <laughs> is probably the next hot thing. Look at uh, well, what's so talk to me loves to talk about uh, Old Town Road. You know, the guy spent two hundred bucks buying a beat, which I don't even understand what that means. What do you mean? You, right. you, you, someone sold you a different way to count to four for for two hundred dollars or whatever it cost. But that's the world we live in now, you know. I mean, yeah. But as someone who who actually you know tried to like you know progress as a musician in a scene, I can tell you it was very competitive and shitty, and we were you know people were not helping each other up the ladder. Like it seemed like in in when you see any documentary by any one of these bands, it turns out they were all roomies at some point, and they were all rooting for each other, and they all helped yeah. each other. Once one got further up, they brought the other one up with them. And um, right. man, I just I it's too bad because think how good art could be if that was the way it was approached everywhere. So true, so very true. Um, Where did yeah, you rank this, I by agree. the way? Uh, uh, I'm asking everybody to re-rank all the oh, 25 right. records. Where did you end up slotting this one? And you can, by the way, I you kind of mentioned something, so go ahead and describe why it's where it's at. I'll be honest. I mean, of the top 25, I knew 13 of the top 25 grunge albums. Um, and most of those- Not counting I, this one? I had you're right I had forgotten to count this one okay so yeah now, no so no no that's valid yeah. I mean before listening to this record you were yeah. you were familiar with 13 of them I was familiar with 13 and though and not most of those like not to in my core where I have every song memorized mm-hmm. because a lot of them I haven't listened to since back then or I had a roommate that had it and yeah, listened yeah. to it but I never felt like buying it myself or whatever so I would slot this. Well, do you want me to? How do you want to do this? Do you want me to count them down for you? What no, do you no, want no. I actually, for this episode, I only want to know where you put this one. I would put this then at probably 12. This album comes in at number 12 for you. Now, yeah. I, I'm glad I, you explained it because it probably would be lower if you knew most of these records. For me, when I now I explained it in the first episode, this is going to be a bit of a fluid list for me to a certain extent. There are four to, I think there's four or five albums that I literally don't know anything about or I just never heard enough to make Mm -hmm. a fair judgment on, and this was one of them. So initially, this came in at dead last for me. After Mm -hmm. listening to it, it moves up to number 20. Uh, But who knows, by the the time this thing is all done, maybe that'll all jump around. Well, uh, let's uh, talk about the Hustle Podcast. John, what do you got coming up? I've got a ton. Because of the one good thing about the coronavirus is that everybody is free to talk right now. Mm -hmm. So I um, I am... I called it. Yes. John Lamoureux's got to be... Just busy as fuck right now. I listened to that episode and you nailed you nailed it. So I have like uh, I don't know. I have like I think twelve or thirteen interviews in the can. Nice. I have four or five album deep dives. We've been doing these deep dives where we're inviting back old guests to come on and go deep on an album they worked on or one of theirs or whatever it is. I've got four or five of those coming up. I've got um, four or five interviews scheduled. In the ca- on the calendar right now, and I've got probably ten more of people where we're still in the process of scheduling. My poor wife, she I, just wants to kill me Wives. because our kids, 
Why, yes, I'm sorry. My, all seven <laughs> of my wives. You would think it would be easier with seven wives because you could just give one of them each a kid and say, don't bother me. But it doesn't work that way. So while, you know, we're trying to keep the kids on task and engaged and not on screens all day, I spend a lot of time in the office working on interviewing people for the podcast and leaving her high and dry. I feel guilty about it, but that's how it goes. <laughs> well, yeah. we, we've had you on the show one time at Rock and Pod. I've always wanted to have you back on because, yeah, as you know, I, th- I think you're a fascinating guy. Um, uh, Thank you. And, and by the way, for you know people who, who give a crap, we met through Rock and Pod. Um, yes. So, uh, yeah, keep it up. Uh, uh, I, I love the show. Uh, honestly, I check out uh, quite a bit. Of, I'd say about 50% of your interviews. I got to be honest. I just assumed you and the Decibel Geek guys and the uh, Sonny's a bro. I love Sonny and Steven. Mm. But I just assume a lot of you guys that are just not paying any attention. And so I appreciate you saying that. You talk about a lot of people that I know that I just don't care that much about, but uh, you have fun conversations with them with. Although y- your bro crush with Kip Winker got me a little uncomfortable. Did um, it? <laughs> I'm just, I kid. No, I, I was just like... <laughs> well... I, let's be honest. I do think Kiss be, or Kiss Kip being a beautiful man yeah. hurt him or minimizes him as a legitimate artist in the eyes of many. Well, that guy who you know was looking all sexy talking about loving seventeen-year-olds <laughs> couldn't possibly be smart enough or creative enough to compose a symphony, but yet he did. And so that that was kind of the angle I was trying to take. Like, let's be honest. Your looks, if anything, have kind of hurt you in some ways you know and they have and to juxtapose against that it's clear uh based on earlier conversation that you and i have not removed 15 year old lisa lisa from our spank bank never <laughs> never <laughs> never uh, john yeah. it was an absolute pleasure you did not disappoint uh, oh one last question is yan a real person yes <laughs> <laughs> yes and it's yan yeah, uh, no, I'm sorry. Jan. Yeah, I know. No, I know. I, I everyone calls him Jan. He uh, he's my production partner in all of this. I am really lucky that he enjoys staying in the background and doing the technical stuff that gives me such massive anxiety. Um, it would never happen without him, and so I'm really lucky that he wants to be a partner in that way. Thanks a lot, uh, and uh, of course, check out the Hustle Podcast. Uh, it's one of the best interview podcasts out there. And I don't know any parting shots. You want to t- take some cheap shots at me or loose? No, no. I uh, I respect what you do. I'm all. Of, I'm. I try to keep things positive. <laughs> I hope. I hope you and your ilk don't think I'm a poser. That's uh, the only thing. I just imagine you guys all getting together at your heavy metal conventions <laughs> and like, oh my gosh, that Lamoureux kid, he is such a poser. He's so Bush League. He can't compete with any of us. It, uh, he better not try to interview any hard rock or heavy metal you're guys. You're so, so wrong. You're so off okay, base. Good. We're not all just about hard rock and metal. Yeah. It's just easier to talk about because those guys are stupid. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Good one. All right. Well, thanks again, John. Um, You want to get out of here? Yeah, whatever. All right. Never mind.
Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Long Shots Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. 